This is the Exquisite Redemption Podcast, where we discuss neighboring, neighborhoods, neighborhood revitalization, and why I love chasing those wild turkeys down my own neighborhood street. Last time on the Exquisite Redemption Podcast. It's been a year now. So you've been a pastor. Yes. Basically, you're a pastor. We TV get together on uh, in the in the uh, after the services, and we ask for prayer. And one time, I prayed for a woman that had that she was playing the piano, and she hadn't been doing that in six and months. Getting on and in the years, we, we share how good God can be, and how wonderful He is, and He takes care of us. He, no matter how old we are, no matter how um, uh, unable our bodies are getting. Shadow, oh Danny boy, oh Danny boy, I love you. Did you know there are 140 million people who are poor or low income in the United States today? Did you know that 13.8 million U.S. households cannot afford water? As of 2018, 53 cents of every federal discretionary dollar goes to military spending and only 15 cents is spent on anti-poverty programs that instead of waging war on poverty we have been waging a war on the poor so i'm telling you these facts which are published by 2018's poor people's campaign because it's a nice segue into today's interview and topic at this time i'm employed by the state of washington as a tanif grant social worker i state this title social worker loosely and carefully because from what I understand social worker is a protected title you may ask what's TANF so TANF stands for temporary assistance for needy families it's a grant that's designed to provide temporary financial assistance to poor families primarily those with no other means to meet basic needs but since TANF's creation in 1996, its reach has declined dramatically. In 1968, 82 out of 100 impoverished families received government funding until they are able to get back on their feet and they no longer needed assistance. That's 82 out of 100 families. Now, in 2017, only 23 out of 100 impoverished families are actually being supported and moving out of what's considered the financial poverty line. In 1995, President Bill Clinton's policy change deleted the Aid to Families with Dependent Children program. And at that time, in 1996, 58% of children were being lifted out of poverty. Now, as of 2017, only 14% of children born in intergenerational systemic poverty were actually lifted out of poverty. This policy was enacted by Bill Clinton, who just so happens to wear a $4,000 suit when guest speaking with an expected payout of a typical 
$210,795. I began working as a TANF social worker with DSHS on October 16th, 2017. The first observation, when people walk through the front door, they are seen as a deficit and a need. The second observation I've made is that because it's a bureaucratic system, there are layers upon layers of leadership put into place who say no to new ideas. The third observation, there's quite a bit of workplace bullying that's happening from the supervisors themselves to their employees. In the short period of time, that I have worked with DSHS have experienced workplace bullying. And because of the supervisor I have, who is amazing by the way, I was given the opportunity and encouraged to stand up to this bullying, which is not typical for a state agency. The Workforce Optimization, the WFO, was created to generate numbers in order to figure out how to give the best service possible to people who walk through our front doors. But instead, it's being used to micromanage and monitor people when they get up, when they sit down, how long they take a break, how long they take lunch. I was in the kitchen with a friend of mine one morning. She stopped by the kitchen to grab a cup of coffee. We talked for a total of one minute. Her supervisor came into the kitchen watched her talk, and told her, you need to go sit back down because you're being monitored. This is a typical day at a DSHS office. It eradicates the potential for creativity. It's an assembly line mentality. It's left over from World War II where programs were designed for production. We're at a time and place in history. Creativity is necessary. DSHS for the state of Washington as a whole has realized there's a reason why people keep leaving. It's easy to hire, exceptionally difficult to keep employees, and there's a reason for that. It is literally an antiquated, outdated system that oppresses the very staff it hires. How in the world is a staff member who feels oppressed and is being oppressed, micromanaged, and distrusted able to treat the people that walk through the front doors as someone who has something to offer rather than, oh, right, here's another person coming through the front door. This whole system needs redemption. That's what this podcast is about. It's about an exquisite redemption, and this is a bureaucratic state, and everything is set up in order to say no to new ideas. In the office itself, there are multiple cliques, little ones here and there, but mostly people come into the office, are micromanaged, and then they leave the office and they barely say goodbye after a hard day's work. Now, Kat and Jana, their relationship is non-exclusive, all-inclusive, and I believe a catalyst for authentic redemption of office culture. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Kick-Ass Kat and Jive and Jana. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. (laughs) I think Jenna just pedaled on your couch. I'm going to try to take this seriously. Ready?
ready. How did both of you come to work at DSHS? Who's talking right now? Jana. I got a degree in social work at Eastern, and then I worked for the YWC as a DV advocate for 10 years. When we first got a contract at Maple, I was one of the co-located DV advocates there. And the social work supervisor at the time uh, that worked at the Maple office, I had left there for a couple of months to go to the legal office, and then she called me and said, I'm hiring. Come. I wasn't even on the, the client registry, knew nothing about how to even do it. Didn't ever plan on working for the state. And she hired me. I went through the process, and she hired me. So I started in TANF Social Work and then moved around to all the offices and then got reallocated to be a WPS, which I love just as much. So, Cat here. My adventure was not so exciting. I moved to Spokane in 2000, and I took a project that was... I am born and raised in California. I'm going to go with rural northern California, like not San Francisco, but more like the Oregon border. I went to the University of Idaho um, on a basketball scholarship. Go Vandals. So I couldn't afford to go home because I got my degree in sociology (laughs) and uh, crime and justice studies. I was certain I was going to be a judge and quickly discovered that wasn't going to the law library for an additional amount of time was not really anything I had zero interest in. So I got my degree in sociology, crime and justice studies, and psychology. That's what you call someone who just is going to school to figure no direction. Yes, (laughs) and play basketball. So I couldn't go home, so I stayed here. I moved to Spokane in 2000 and took a project through Spokane Neighborhood Action Programs because it was right around when Washington State was going to start actually enforcing the time limits. Uh, And so the program was called Spokane Works, and our goal was to try to work intensely, more intensely than the TANF case managers um, with people who were um, like receiving 30 consecutive months or already going to be timing out um, with the actual enforcement of the months. So it was a grant that ended, and then I was kind of just bumbling around doing energy assistance when a current state employee that was at a site I was working at told me to apply, and I did in 2006 and became a financial worker. And since 2006, I've done a little bit of everything in the CSO. We both worked at the Maple office. When did you start there? 2009. Okay, and that's when I left Maple to go to Trent. So then I came back, um, what, five or six years ago. And Kat would pass my cubicle all the time. Never once said hi to her. Never once had even, probably smiled walking down the hall or whatever. But never had a conversation with her. Knew nothing about her. And then she did, we were hiring for a WPS position. And she decided to apply. Didn't think she'd get the job because I didn't know her. <laughs> but she came in with this this presence that was just amazing and and. She got the job, and we've been friends, I'd say, pretty much ever since. So we met through the CSO, but we didn't know each other for a couple years, probably. That's such a nice version of the story. What's yours? Yeah, continue. Continue. I was an ABD social worker at the Maple office, and I remember hearing this hubbub about TANF people having to come to the Maple office, and they were not stoked about it. Okay. What is TANF? We are TANF workers, which is temporary assistance for needy families. It is a cash program designed for families with children. The welfare office, the welfare 
the idea of what welfare is is usually with the TANF families, unfortunately. Do you know what year it was when TANF started? 1997. It changed from AFDC. That was enacted by Bill Clinton. Have you seen any positive changes in the poverty levels? Like, what is your observation with TANF? How successful would you say it is? I think it's always evolving and lots of changes can always be made mm-hmm. um, and changes are can be good, but scary for a lot of people also. Um, like what kind of changes? Would- going from being paid every other week when you've constantly been paid on the first day of the month. I'm going to say uh, I was at the Maple office in 2009 and I was working in ABD in 2010 and you were allocated to our office in 2000. And- I think I want to say it was close to 2010, maybe to that. What, what year is it right now? 2019? No, it wasn't. It was probably 13, 13, 2013, 2013. right yeah. around there. Yeah. Okay. So we were making an adjustment in our offices in Spokane where we were operating as one CSO community service office. It's basically the DSHS office. Correct. So in Spokane, we ran a very extensive science experiment where we ran under one CSO with three offices and locations, very specific and segregated in the work that we did. So as Tana was actually stationed at our Valley location and I was at the Maple location with what was supposed to be the point office for all non-family services. So when we undid the science experiment in 2013, I remember a coworker saying, we're getting a couple of TANF workers. And I said, who are we getting? And there were a couple of names thrown out. And I said, based on seniority, of course. (laughs) I said, oh, I know Sarah. She worked at my other office. I have no idea who that other girl is. (laughs) And Mike, I don't know how you knew Mike. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I I worked with him at Maple. Okay. He said, oh, Jenna is a very nice girl. She's a little quiet, but she's nice. And so she came into the office probably March of 2013. March, March 18th. And I don't think we probably said a single word. I told you it wasn't an it, option. It was, a, it was a blessing in disguise, though. So Sarah and I, well... WPSs, except for one, stayed at Maple. Um, we were all located at the Trent location. WPS stands for? Workforce Program Specialist. Absolutely, yeah. 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 The new administrator came into the Trent location, wanted to make changes right away. Like what kind of changes? Wanted to kind of shift. I mean, I, quite honestly, I couldn't even tell you what was in his head, but just wanted to kind of shift who, a separation of Maple and Trent, because mm-hmm. And so he wanted to shift some, some individuals over to the Maple office. And it, it was two of us. I mean, again, it was based on seniority. So we were just kind of told where we were going. And we were not happy with it at the time. But in the end, for both of us, it was a blessing in disguise. I don't, mm-hmm. never go back to that office. <laughs> There's a lot of new, even though our office has, you know, some issues probably. You know, we're, nothing's perfect. Um, the staff over there, a lot of them are really seasoned staff, which is a very positive. I mean, they can bring a lot of learning. and You know, I, that's very positive when I say that. Um, but I think new blood is also good. Mm-hmm. New ideas. Um, where that making those changes or, hey, we don't have to keep doing things the way we do it just because that's the way we do it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that's the best way. So that's why, like, I prefer the office I'm at now. 
and that can change you know in the future too because a lot of people are retiring over there and but I would say I knew zero about Shanna before she came to the Maple office. The only thing I knew about Kat is I could see her head when she was walking past the cubicles. <laughs> so um, honestly, I can say we probably did not exchange five words prior to the interview. I transferred or was hired to become the workforce program specialist in Jana's unit in December of 13. There were only three other staff at that time at Work First workers at the Maple office. Again, Jenna had been reallocated due to seniority, so they were pretty young. The more seasoned staff at the time was having some difficulties and wasn't really present and available. So I think trial by fire, Jana really got stuck with handholding and training me just by necessity and because she was more seasoned and more accurately fit. And really why I started training her was because her boss wanted to put her in a cube away from our unit. To put her in a cube away from our unit. Put her in a cube away from our unit. Our unit. Our unit. From our unit. She wanted to put her away. And I'm like, you're going to put someone that hasn't been trained away. I said no. And I took I took a tape measure and measured and said, no, it's not bigger. Oh, yeah. It's definitely cubicle land. And in that time, we were also in the remodel. I heard every day, Jana. That is very true. I can't give an approximate time, but I I can say that I'm a fairly needy person and I don't do anything by myself. I know that it was a constant, hey, Jana, hey, Jana, because she was the only one in the cubicle next to me. The other side of me was storage. They moved the stuff and it was like a refrigerator and like a food cubicle. Literally, Jana was the only one within... And I made her read all of my notes, do all of my... <laughs> she still does. And I still do. Yep, yep. I would say our friendship really blossomed after my my desire and my need not to be alone and do anything by myself. And then having shared ideals in the way that the work should be done. And that's what I was just going to say is, is that we do kind of have the same goals in what we do and not necessarily everything, but very common ground that I think we both approach uh, people very non-judgmentally and I think that's one of the most common I, I don't think anything is innate so when you talk about cycle of poverty uh, you can have a significant learning curve a lot of folks you know the longer you do the work to hear someone dropped out in the sixth grade and I'm thinking that was never an option in my house like you know so but my parents also modeled every day going to work and that school for me was my job so and the non-assumption of why people are in our office and i think we both have a significant uh, dv background because jenna worked at the y and i actually worked at a place called alternatives to violence of the palouse down in pullman when that's your trial by fire work you understand that a lot goes into the lives of the people doesn't matter what I think about it or the reality and the survival. So I can just expand that to all the vulnerable people that we work with. And I think that core experience in the DV world really shaped our shared understanding. I think we both have a huge value in taking time with clients when we work in an office that a lot of times on the financial end of things, it's number, 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 time, or time, time, time. You know, you have to do this many in a day where it's, I might take three hours with a client if that's what that client needs. And I'm not going to be told not to. Like that's at my heart and it's at hers also. And that's definitely something that is a connection. Let's say you spend three hours with a client. Like, do you, what do you experience if you do 
goosebumps and it, what they would consider an exorbitant amount of time with someone. With our supervisor, really nothing. But when it comes to your evaluation, yearly evaluation, there's numbers in that. So then it's, well, you did this many, you did this many. And again, I've never been written up. There's no talk of it, anyone getting fired for not meeting numbers. And that's why for me, I just let it go over my head. I don't let it stress me out, stress me out, stress me out, stress me out. Because it's not going to change who I am and the kind of work I do. I do believe that there is a higher mentality of efficiency. So in our office, I would say we are incredibly efficient, meaning we are moving people at a high rate and and it does lead to a lot of impersonal. So for me, I feel like there's a lot of veiled threats, veiled threats, veiled threats, um, but nothing that I perceive as actionable. So I've never been the type of personality where that will impact me. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate about Jana as well, as I know that it's not going to impact her. I think it's really easy to have the assumption she's doing what's best for the client. I think I have that same perspective, but also I don't think any of my teammates would ever question that as well. And I can say that about a lot of my teammates is that I can make the assumption they're doing what's right for the client at the time. I don't worry about are we moving them fast enough? So at the end of the day, absolutely, in our performance evaluations, you are going to get a raw number. Numbers are kind of special to me because I think our our office or our region or our state uses a lot of false data analytics to to verify the value of a human being, to verify the value of a human being, to verify the value of a human being. Fourteen. Fifteen. Uh, I, I'm very comfortable um, being able to show the value of my work outside of the numbers. And I think our supervisors use these tools um, and use these raw numbers uh, very incorrectly to judge us as human beings, 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 as human beings. And I think um, there are some really cool technology things that we have, but if they're misused, those, those false analytics, the, the bad data, we use raw data. For example, I am measured on the number of cases that I poll and complete. So it's always measured how many cases you actually obtain and you touch, but there's zero follow-up or any discussion about the outcome of that case. So, for example, if I pull 100 cases and they are all self-employment cases that are going to be a lot more intense or they are significant barrier, DV, scary stuff going on, that's no different than if Jana pulled 100 cases that were all homeless men with no income and just wanting food assistance. So nothing measures, nothing is weighting what we do. So it's all weighted equally. And the only thing we look at is the number that we touch, not how we touch it, how we impact people. Uh, And so another example is if I pull 100 cases and 50 are no-shows, I get the same credit as, as Jenna who saw 100 people. So I feel very secure in that. I've never been written up either. I, I do think there's a lot of failed threats um, trying to make people move faster. I think really in the financial world, we've got a lot of people that can do incredible data entry, but they cannot do eligibility. And I think that's an unfortunate reality. In a certain sense, yes. I mean, we have a very strong friendship um, and a bond that's maybe different than I would have with another coworker, but as a unit, as an as what we do professionally, 
I see us all as a community. I would say more support, and that can be a lot of different things, but from management, quite honestly, and even higher up, to value the clients we serve, the customer service, instead of the time and the numbers, that sort of a thing. Because I, ju I just don't feel it. I don't feel the support in what we do. But most of us that work there are there for a reason, because we love the clientele that we serve, or want to do the best we can to help them, give them resources. So that, that's something that would could make a difference that's not true because you just ate my shoe i will be in shock if you want to eat my sock i don't know what to say when you tell me go away now for some housekeeping cat mentioned quote unquote 30 consecutive months of receiving tanf TANF funding is available to each family unit for a total of 60 months. That's five years. And the only way a family unit is able to receive more than 60 months of TANF funding, that can be depending on the number of household members. If you have six or seven children, you can have up to $700 a month. The only way a family unit is able to receive more than 60 months of TANF funding is if the parental unit is able to medically prove the necessity of continually receiving TANF funding goes 12 months at a time, depending on what the medical proof is saying this family is needing. Now, Kat, she also mentioned bumbling around with energy assistance. Now, when she's talking about energy assistance support, it is related to programs like SNAP. SNAP stands for Spokane Neighborhoods Action Plan. SNAP provides funding to keep families from being evicted or having the electricity turned off in the middle of our severely frigid winter months. There was another term that Kat and Jana used. It's called allocated or relocated. And being allocated means you're transferred to whatever office you are deemed necessary to fulfill a role. There is no allowance for any type of input concerning the office location you may have originally started in. Typically, a person is asked for his or her opinion sometimes, and when you state your opinion or you state your specific office, the leadership nod their heads in apparent agreement, which is followed by a consistent disregard of opinion asked from the staff member. Jana called the lack of autonomy, quote unquote, a blessing in disguise. We were told we were going. This statement is a pretty accurate description of leadership style throughout DSHS in its entirety, the state of Washington. This pervasive lack of compassion or leaning into a listening posture is not only an issue at one specific office location. This is a lack of respect, autonomy, and interest, and it's absolutely pervasive throughout the state of Washington. Kat stated that the senior staff were experiencing some difficult, so they weren't present and available. She was brand new staff. Both Kat and Jenna also described their supervisor at the time literally trying to separate Kat from the rest of her team, placing Kat in isolation without any type of training or support right after she was being newly hired. This too is absolutely typical. Redemption of a place includes advocating for the eradication of purposely isolating a single staff member. Both Kat and Jana also described experiencing verbalized threats of being written up for not moving their clients quick enough, for spending too much time with a client, which may be in need of that time. They're monitored almost 
almost weekly by supervision, being blamed for whatever isn't enough. Whatever it is deemed at that time, our numbers are low. In all honesty, our office is the busiest office in our part of the region. Both team members alluded to their work not suffering when experiencing these veiled threats on an almost weekly basis. But I ask you, how long can a person experience these veiled threats without it chipping away at his or her resolve? Now, the most recent podcast episode, we began unpacking the story of Susan Glover. She was married to the father of Spokane. James Glover, quote unquote, lived happily together until the early 1890s. And in 1891, some two years after the couple moved to Glover Mansion, Mr. Glover, Mr. James Glover, petitioned for a separation from Susan. A divorce was finalized the following March, with Susan Glover receiving a monthly $100 stipend and included the condition that she returned to Salem. The divorce complaint that James Glover filed, a copy of which is part of the collection in the Northwest Room of the downtown Spokane Library, if anyone would like to check it out, disputes the image of the happily married couple, stating by 1878 they were largely living separately. The complaint also alleges Susan Glover was wholly impotent, barren, and incapable of reproduction as a reason for seeking the separation and dissolution of the marriage. How do we redeem these stories? How do we redeem this place? How do we support one another into leaning into one another's story? How do we transform this office-based culture of silencing another way of being, another way of doing? How do we do this? And I'm hoping by starting a conversation and inviting my teammates' participation and collaboration and speaking out the life and love and care that Kat and Janet have for one another and for the people they interact with may be a part of the process of others who go to work every day in a bureaucratic environment and in a bureaucratic culture and lean into a different way. Join me next time as we continue dialogue, as we engage in the idea of transparent transformation, relationally redemptive taking back of the cyclical narrative of silencing the other. Thank you for joining me in discussing what an exquisite redemption looks like in this time, in this space, and in my city. Once again, I'd like to thank Jive and Jana and Kick-Ass Cat for engaging in this imperative conversation. And Spokane, don't forget your grit and grime because that's part of your redemption story too.